Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, good morning. My name is Jeremy Moore. I'm pastor of discipleship here at Southridge. Uh, As has already been said in this service, welcome everyone who is here in person. Uh, Welcome to those who are watching online. And it is Super Bowl Sunday. Who's excited? Who's excited for the game? Okay, maybe uh, we got some plans, hot wings, friends, family, fun, festivities. Uh, Tonight we got the, uh, oh, thank you. Tonight we got the 49ers, right, playing the uh, Chiefs. I wouldn't exactly call myself a football fan, if you know me, uh, but I love the festivity of Super Bowl. I heard that. I got a laugh out of that. I love the festivity of Super Bowl. I picture the coaches and the players kind of in the locker room, strategizing, kind of prepping for the big game. You know, they got the, uh, the flip chart out, and they're drawing the plays, and uh, they're watching the uh, video. They're studying the video of the opposing team, their strengths, their weaknesses. Now, all of this is great study. But can you just imagine if, uh, the, if the coaches were like, all right, team, like our job is done here now. Uh, everybody knows that the reason you do all of that abstract study is to play a better game on the field. So they're going to go out there and play the best game possible. I also think of the example of when you buy a new car. Uh, I recently bought a new car for my uncle. When you buy a new car, after you drive it home, what's probably the first thing that you do when you buy the new car? You read read the manual. You read the manual. And I was joking earlier with somebody who's an engineer and saying, like, now this is probably not true for you, but most of us don't just read the manual to figure out all the fun little factoids about how the car is put together and how everything works. Like, most of us read the manual to figure out how to drive the car better. We want to actually get on the road, and when a little light comes on on the dashboard, we want to know, oh, okay, like, that's what this is, and this is what I should do. Uh, When the... um, when we go to press a button, we want to know that like, before we press the button, that like, we shouldn't have pressed that button. It's going to blow something up. Um, and so we, we want to know how to drive the car better. Uh, we've been in a message series, The Renewed Community. We're taking a look at the community of Christ in the book of Ephesians. Uh, so the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, and it's the book of Ephesians. Uh, so far, where we've been in the book of Ephesians is... Uh, Throughout the fall and then also here in the new year, we have looked at chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 1 to 3 are kind of this gigantic grand vision that answers the question, what is the gospel? What's the gospel of Jesus? Now, this morning, we come to a watershed. We come to chapter 4 of the letter, and there's a little bit of a shift. Uh, What Paul is going to say to his readers is, let's take all of this out of the realm of theory, and let's put it into practice. Okay, you remember that big, gigantic, grand vision that I cast for the gospel? Okay, we're going to move that into practice right now. In a a very real sense, he's saying this. He's saying, we're going to move it out of the locker room and onto the field. We're going to move it out of the garage and onto the road. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at Paul's challenge to remember that gospel, Live it out. Live it out. 
So keep that shift in mind because you're about to hear the verses this morning read that we're going to take a deep dive into. Cher is going to come up. She's going to share. Cher will share. Cher will share with us Ephesians 4, 1 to 13. So take a listen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy, worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Thank you, Cher. So take a look at verse 1, which, we, which you just heard read. Ephesians 4.1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What is this calling that he's saying you've received? It's none other than what he's just spent three chapters unpacking. The calling is the gospel. And if we were to take a look back at chapters 1 through 3 and just pick out like just a handful of the blessings that God is bestowing on his people, his church, uh, through Jesus Christ. Like we would have our mind and our minds blown and our hearts filled. Let's take just a moment to just survey just a few statements that represent the calling that you've received that Paul is now saying, live it out. The gospel that Paul preached in Ephesians 1 through 3 is though you were dead in your transgressions and sins, Though your relationship with God was irreparably broken, God has acted powerfully, and through faith in Jesus Christ, you are restored to whole relationship with God. You are restored, you're redeemed, the Holy Spirit is in the process of making you into the person that God had in mind when humans were originally created. Here are just a few of the blow your mind and fill your heart statements that Paul has made in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3. He chose us to be his before creation began. He pursued us in love and adopted us into God's family. He made us his very own children, co-heirs with Christ. He lavished grace on us. He indwelled us with his spirit. He revealed to us the trajectory of history to bring unity to heaven and earth. He gave us his resurrection power. He reveals through us the fullness of who he is. He raised us from the dead and seated us at the place of honor next to the Father. He prepared in advance good works for us to do. He brought us near to him by his shed blood on the cross. 
He's making us his temple, his very dwelling where his presence lives. And through us, he's making his wisdom known to every power in heaven on earth. Now, there's amazing theological curiosities and heart comforts here. But what Paul wants to say is in this shift in chapter 4, these things aren't just simply given to you so you can wonder in amazement over them. They aren't simply given to you so that you can have them for your individual moments of comfort. They are given to you to live out. They are given to you to live out. Take these things from chapters 1 to 3 and take them out on the road. Take them out of the locker room and into the field. And I'm going to give you three pictures this morning that represent the heart of Paul's challenge to live it out. Live it out. The first picture is a balance scale. A balance scale. You'll see it on the screen. A balance scale. You might have seen it like a TV show or like a movie. Um, One of these old style balance scales. The way that it works is you put one thing on one side, put one thing on another side, and you see which one weighs more. Paul actually says here in in 4.1, which we'll look at again, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Live a life worthy. What he's saying is, if you you picture a scale, on one side is this mind-blowing, world-changing, universe-redeeming vision of the gospel that's just been cast in chapters 1 to 3. On the other side, make sure that what's over here weighs as much. We might call what's over here our life response. If on one side of the scale is good theology or a solid theology of the gospel, Paul says make sure on the other side of the balance scale is is life response. It's great to live out. It's great to believe good theology. It's important to to believe good theology. But this weighty and significant theology is meant to be just as weighty and significant in how we live it out in our lives and in our relationships. So may we pursue good scripturally grounded theology, but may we not stop there. May we also live out good scripturally grounded theology. And that's exactly where Paul takes us in the following verses. In verses 2 and 3, he gives us a brief sketch of what the gospel looks like in action. A brief sketch. So we looked at a balanced scale. Secondly, a brief sketch. What he wants to say is, for the rest of the letter, he's going to be delving into what does the gospel look like applied? What does it look like applied to our lives and relationships? But here, he's going to give us kind of a little summary statement. He's going to give us a brief sketch. What does this gospel that I've just unpacked to you for three chapters look like applied to life and our relationships? A brief sketch. Look at Ephesians 4, 2 to 3. Verses 2 to 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So he says three main things in this verse. He says, be humble, be gentle, be patient. This is a direct application of where he's just been in Ephesians 1 through 3. In Ephesians 2, he described the sad state of human beings separated from relationship with God. We're self-centered, self-destructive, and he says we're deserving of wrath because of it. 
But he goes on to say, we don't get what we deserve. In his kindness, God gave us grace. He gave us undeserved favor. He didn't give us what we deserved. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. So Paul says, because of his great love for us, he didn't give us what we deserved. In Ephesians 4, 2 here now, he says, now this is what it looks like to apply that to relationships. Fueled by the Holy Spirit, fueled by the resurrection power of God in us, God is calling us to be gentle, be humble, be patient with one another. Why? Because God was patient with us. How do we know? We see it in what was just revealed in this articulation of the gospel. God was kind to us when we didn't deserve it. Well, what does that mean for you? Fueled by the Holy Spirit, be kind to one another, be humble, be gentle, be patient as God was with you in Christ. In 4.3, he says something else that flows directly out of what he said in chapters 1 to 3. Okay, his live it out statement in verse 3 is he urges the Ephesians to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, this flows right out of something that he said in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1.10, Paul describes God's trajectory for history as this. He says, God's trajectory for history is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under Christ. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, it's a total contradiction to think, well, the big thing that God is doing is he's taking back what's been lost to sin and Satan. He is bringing unity to the ways that sin and Satan have divided and broken this creation. He's bringing unity or wholeness under the kingship of Jesus. Oh, but that doesn't apply to God's people. God's people, he said in Ephesians 2, are his new humanity. They're going to be the people that inhabit his new creation. When Christ returns to set things right, and as Paul said, once again, all things are subjected to the authority or the kingship of Jesus, like we are going to be the people, you and I, those of us who are in Christ, will be the people that inhabit the new creation. How can the inhabitants of the new creation be marked by division and self-interest when God says what the creation will ultimately be about is unity under the kingship of Jesus. And so here's what it looks like, Paul says, to apply what he's already said to life and relationship. What it looks like is fueled by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. We're called to be a people who are unified with each other under the authority of Jesus and around the things that he's taught us and what he's modeled to us. But what's this unity look like? You know, you, you and I have probably both all heard messages on unity, and it sounds maybe a little bit like a Hallmark card, and we say to ourselves, but what does it look like? What does it actually look like to live out this unity? Paul does the best thing that you could probably do to help somebody understand something. He says, look, look, here it is in a picture. Here it is in a metaphor. A metaphor that almost like helps you take this super complex thing of what unity looks like in the body and sort of wrap your head and your heart around it. And the picture that he gives us is, he gives us the picture of a body. 
a body growing, a body growing. You'll see on the screen, there's a height chart. Some of you might have kids or you had kids that have grown up and left the house. Um, we have two kids who have grown up and left the house, two teens that are in the house with us. We also have a seven-year-old. And our seven-year-old um, is probably the one this applies to the most. But, you know, when you have a kid that age, you'll often mark the height of that kid's growth, like on a door, a door jam or a height chart like the one on the screen. Paul actually uses the image of a body. And we're going to see it's a growing body to represent the body of Christ. So we talked about a brief scale, a, um, a balance scale, a brief sketch, and then lastly, a body growing, a body growing. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 begins, there is one body. Now, stop right there. There's a couple of reasons why Paul uses the metaphor of a body to help us understand unity in the body of Christ, the community of Jesus. Now, the first reason is, is because a body is unified. Okay, if a body is fit, you're not having different parts of the body going in different directions, right? You, you say to yourself, I'm going to take a walk, and then your whole body moves in unison with, with that walk on that path. But, so a body is unified. But secondly, the way that unity works in a body is that the diver, unity is a function of diversity. So the way that unity works in a body is you have different parts with a different design that all contribute to the unity. That's the other reason why Paul uses the metaphor of a body. And then lastly, a body grows. A body grows. It grows and matures as each part functions according to design. So that's, this is what Paul does. For the next 12 verses, he unpacks those three themes. Unity, diversity, growth. And he's going to start with unity. First, he says, look, a body is unified. That's God's vision for the church. A body's unified. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul gives this laundry list of ones. Could he make it any more clear that his main point is that the body is unified? We are one body, he says. We are indwelled by one spirit, the guiding, living presence of God in us. We have one hope. That hope is the gospel that he's just unpacked for so many chapters. We have one Lord, Jesus, Messiah, King of heaven and earth. We have one faith. New Testament uses the word faith in different ways. Most often, faith is kind of a synonym for trust or dependence. So our faith is in Christ. Okay, we, we have shifted our dependence or our trust from ourselves to save us to Christ our Savior. It's being used a little differently here. It's being used to say, look, we have sort of like this one core of beliefs that we affirm. Jesus taught them. Jesus lived them. Jesus modeled them and revealed them to the apostles. Okay, and this is almost like a hub, these core affirmations that represent the gospel. It's sort of like this hub around which we unify. Although the New Testament writers make it very clear there's going to be different convictions and preferences in the body of Christ, but we unify around this hub of core affirmations of the gospel. He says we share one baptism. Jesus gave us this common symbol for being spiritually cleansed or forgiven by him, for being unified to Christ through relationship with him. 
So one baptism. And then finally he says, we have one God uh, and Father of all. Uh, He is the creator from whom all humans come. That's why he's the father of all. He's the creator of all. He's the source of all who are humans. And there's a special sense that Paul has already hit, that he is our father, those of us who are believers, those of us whose faith are in Christ. He is our father in a deeper sense, that he's adopted us in his family, that we're co-heirs with our brother Jesus, that we are brothers and sisters of one another. Now, here's a fun trivia question. How many ones are in the verse? Did you count them? If you, if you haven't, look on the screen or look in your Bible. Count how many ones. How many are there? Seven. What does that matter? When we studied Revelation, so for about a year or so, we had a bunch of different message series where we went through the whole book of Revelation. We saw numerous examples of how seven represents completeness, perfection, wholeness. And so what you have here is you have Paul, and it's just like the crazy stuff. This is the crazy stuff and the intricacy of Scripture. You have Paul reinforcing numerically what he's stating explicitly. And that's this. That's that's this. Look, how many ones? Seven. What's that mean? God is bringing his church to complete unity, complete wholeness. What's God's vision for his church? Wholeness, completeness, unity. Why? What's God's vision for his whole creation? Wholeness, completeness, unity, no division. Everything unified under the authority of Jesus. But oneness and sameness are not the same thing. Oneness and sameness are not the same thing. So what he turns to next is the diversity in the body of Christ. The diversity in the body of Christ. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 9. I'm warning you, this is a little heavy. Um, This is one of Paul's classic bunny trails. You know what I mean. If you've read Paul, you're tracking with him, and then you get to a part, and you're like, what in the world? Where are we going? Paul, where are we going here? But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the universe. It's tough, tough verses. This is what I think he's saying. I'll do the best I can to kind of represent for you. This is, this is what I think he says what he says and kind of where he goes with it. He starts with the idea that God's a generous God. God is a God who he, he pours out grace on his people. He's a God who has distributed gifts of grace to his people. We'll find out in just a moment what Paul says those gifts of grace are. But to sort of back up his point that, look, God's a generous gift-giving God, he quotes Psalm 68. That's what that little quotation is, Psalm 68. If you were to read Psalm 68, it's a pretty long and involved kind of like poetic expression of how God, Yahweh, the true God, is the king who has victory over his enemies. And so it's the psalm that pictures God as having victory over his enemies. And then in the ancient world, what did you do if your king had victory over the enemies? You gathered up all the spoils of war or the plunder, and you honored your king by giving those gifts to the king. You paid homage to the king by giving the gifts that were spoils of war. And so the psalm pictures these, uh, well, it pictures Yahweh ascending to the temple mount, which is his throne, and then his people bless him with the gifts of the spoils of war. 
And so Paul is writing, and he says, like, okay, where am I going with this? Ah. And he says, like, really what I want to say is so beautifully expressed by Psalm 68, because Jesus is the fulfillment of that scripture. Because the most significant and ultimate way that God ascended in victory was when Jesus ascended. And so Jesus ascended, the New Testament says, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father or the place of honor next to the Father. So the same thing is happening in the New Testament, the fulfillment of it that was happening in Psalm 68. Jesus ascends to his throne, and then Paul almost seems to say, now remember those gifts? Remember those gifts that were given when God ascended to his throne like way back in Psalm 68? Do you think God kept those? No, he gave them to his church. Gave them to his church generously. He opened his arms and he said, here they are, church. And he, he, he sort of distributed amongst them the spoils of war. Not, not a literal war, but the most significant victory that God ever accomplished was conquering sin and death when Christ died, rose again, and ascended. And so he says, look, in what way is God generous? He distributes those spoils to his people. Now, what are these gifts of grace? What are these spoils or gifts of grace that he's talking about? Uh, we find out in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. Now, I'll tell you this. He uses this, he uses the language of gifts a little differently here. Um, in, in elsewhere in the New Testament, um, gifts are often sort of, the word gifts is often used to refer to maybe like a spirit-given or a spirit-led competency or like a divine design. Now, take a look here at how he, he sort of spins the gifts language a little differently. Like what he pictures the gifts as being is a little different in this passage. And I think he's doing that for a specific reason. So think about that. You could read these verses. Ask yourself, what are the gifts? What are the gifts? Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what are the gifts? I could have given it away if I asked you something different. If I said to you, who are the gifts? It would give it away. The gifts are the people. Do you see the gifts are the people in the verse? He doesn't actually say God gave apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, teaching, and pastoring. What he actually says is God, he gave the people. God gave the prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, the teachers, and the pastors. Um, that pastors and teachers looks to be one word, one hyphenated word in Greek. It looks like pastors, teachers. Okay, so he gave these people who have these ministries to the church. Paul is saying, as you and I, with our diverse experiences, abilities, design, uh, resources, as we serve each other, the Holy Spirit uses us to be a gift of grace in the lives of each other. The gifts are the people. Now, he, he zeroes in on certain people in the body of Christ. Um, he zeroes in on this list of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. 
Now, this is just a small selection. Just a couple of things. Why does he zero in on these? He clearly goes on to say, this is a whole body dynamic. Why does he zero in on like this little list? Uh, first of all, it's not a comprehensive list. Okay, so he kind of zooms the camera in and he focuses on a certain kind of role. We'll see what that is in a second. Uh, secondly, I think that um, he doesn't give these because they are more valuable than the rest. These people and their roles are not more valuable than the rest in the body of Christ. But he's zooming in on a specific point. He seems to mention these people because their roles are especially equipping roles. And that's his point. They're especially equipping roles. Now notice in verse 12, he pulls the camera back and he expresses that what he's really talking about is that the whole body of Christ grow to maturity, that the whole body of Christ be blessed, the whole body of Christ grow. And he says this happens through works of service, as each of us are equipped for works of service. Now, I think he, he zeroes in on those equipping roles because they are especially important for everyone in the body of Christ to actually be doing what they do for the right reason, flowing from the right story. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Um, all of those equipping roles are, are, in a sense, they teach, articulate, clarify the gospel for the body of Christ. So that as each of us serve in whatever way we're serving, we're doing it as an expression flowing out of the gospel. Okay, it's not an expression of, let's say, pop culture or current trends, or political rhetoric. It's an expression of the true, authentic, genuine gospel. In verse 12, when he says that the whole body of Christ is equipped for works of service, there's kind of a special word there. It's the word diakonia. I'm going to show it to you. Diakonia. You don't, you don't know it yet, but many of you probably know this word in English. Diakonia, works of service. Diakonia, if you gave it a range of meaning, it means something like service or maybe ministry. Okay, so you know those words. Here's an interesting one. Or deaconing. Deaconing. Some of you just like groaned because you grew up in a church like I did with deacons. How many people grew up in a tradition where you had deacons in your church? Yeah, deacons. So in the tradition that I grew up in, unfortunately, the deacons were, I mean, you had some people doing some, some things that were seen as a little more peripheral, but sort of like the main people that were seen as the ministers were the deacons. They were the people who did the ministry. So Paul is saying that's a thoroughly unbiblical way to view the body of Christ. What he's saying here is we're all deacons. We're all deacons. Okay, not, there's not a sort of select few that are deacons. The body grows up as every part in the body serves each other in love. I was listening recently to a, uh, a message, and somebody was saying, uh, look, the, one of the first things that a new pastor did when he came into our church, and it was kind of like a top-down church, where like it was sort of seen as like, those people do the ministry. We are the people who receive the ministry. 
You know, those paid staff or volunteer leaders, they're the ones that do the ministry. We just simply passively receive it. And he, and he said that, that uh, this new minister kind of almost got wind of the fact that that's a cultural thing that needed to change to be more biblical in the church. And he got up, and sometimes we don't meet and greet here. Like, sometimes we say, like, stand and greet someone near you. Well, they had that sort of time in their service. And this is how he introduced the meet and greet. He said, ladies and gentlemen, meet the ministers of your church. And then he then facilitated the meet and greet. That's a biblical vision. That's a biblical vision. Every single one of us is empowered by the Holy Spirit to deacon, to minister, to serve. And what does Paul say happens as we actively serve one another in love. First, as each of us serve one another in love, the Holy Spirit is uniquely at work through our designs, our passions, our abilities, our experiences, our resources. And when that happens, Jesus is more effectively revealed to the world. Jesus is more effectively revealed to the world. Um, Remember what we just read in verse 10. He ascended. Why did he ascend? To fill the universe. He ascended to fill the universe. He didn't merely ascend to fill the auditorium each Sunday. There's this gigantic, expansive, world-changing, universe-redeeming vision that Christ ascended so that God's presence could permeate every aspect of our divided and broken world. And so... It only follows then that his people, his church, are part of that mission. And one of the greatest reasons that Paul is saying to us here, look, grow up, grow up spiritually, is because over and over and over in the New Testament, the reason why we're compelled to grow up is because we grow into the image of Christ. We grow into Christ's likeness. And as we grow into Christ's likeness, and the body of Christ grows worldwide, that there's nowhere in the world that there's not an incarnation or a representation of Jesus. To every four corners of the globe, Christ is represented by his people. So one of the key ways that he fills our world in service to God's goal of filling the universe with God's presence is through his people. Um, His people, Paul has said earlier in Ephesians, that, that we're the fullness of representation of Christ. You know, we're the fullness of the one who fills everything in every way. How are we the fullness? As we grow up into Christ, like we are a mirror that represents him, reveals him to the world. And secondly, what else happens? As each of us serve in love, and his spirit works uniquely through our designs, passions, abilities, experiences, resources, people grow up spiritually. People grow up spiritually. People like you and I become people who grasp the truth more clearly. We know God more deeply. We love others more authentically. And we resemble Jesus more vividly. Now, that idea is captured so powerfully in the last verse of this section. Now here's a little preview. Next week, Nathan is actually gonna speak on the verse I'm about to read, verse 16. And he's gonna dive more deeply than I'm going to now. But Ephesians 4, 16, he kind of lands the plane and summarizes every, everything that he's been saying and where he's been going with this whole train of thought. Ephesians 4, 16, from him, 
The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying the, tr- the transforming grace of God does not come from you. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from natural ability. It doesn't come from sort of um, like sheer talent at work in isolation from God. It comes as we are conduits of God's grace, as God's grace flows through us to others. We're not the source of God's transforming grace. However, we are conduits. We are mediators of God's grace. It flows through us as we serve each other in love. And the result is the body grows and Jesus is revealed to the world. So far in Ephesians, we've seen this like world-changing universe, redeeming, grand vision. And it would be easy for us to sort of say, well, not really sure what that has to do with me. Uh, somewhere off in Alpha Centauri, you know, God is, is permeating the universe with his presence. And Paul actually doesn't let us get away with that here. What he's actually saying is, look, here's the most down-to-earth application of what I've already said. This is my challenge. He says, we are all gifts of God's grace. And he says, serve, serve one another in love. That's your part in God filling the whole universe with his presence. That's your part. As each of us serves one another in love and his spirit is uniquely at work through each of our designs, passions, abilities, experiences, resources, God is glorified. People grow up spiritually. Jesus is revealed to the world. Now, as you seek to live this out, as you seek to live out this call to action to serve one another in love, as I seek to live out this call to action to serve one another in love, here's some practical recommendations for us. It's kind of where I want to land the plane. Here's some practical recommendations for us. Uh, First, try stuff. This is really deep advice. Try stuff. Just try stuff. Sometimes people in the body of Christ say like, well, you know, I'm not really sure, not sure how to contribute, don't really have time. Just make some time and start trying some ways to serve and minister. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens. And this is the second piece of advice. Prayerfully assess and seek feedback. Prayerfully assess. So here's what happens. As people just start trying different ministries and ways to serve, they start saying to themselves, oh, These are the types of things I'm starting to see God is uniquely using me to do. Um, These are the kinds of things that it matters that I do, not just that someone does. And you you start to sort of see, this is what over and over seems to be bearing the most fruit. God seems to be uniquely at work through me in others' lives. And a big part of that is, is the feedback of others. Uh, what have people repeatedly said to you? This made a difference in my life. When you do this, when you say this, when you serve this way, it makes a difference in my life. God uses it. Now, if nobody is saying that to you, seek it out. Seek it out. Um, I didn't share this with first service, but one of the things this makes me think of is on my cork board in my office, my bulletin board, I have no less than 10 Light of Christ I See in You cards. 
This is an activity that we often do in smaller settings here at Southridge. And you just, you, it's an affirmation activity. So you just simply say, the light of Christ I see in you, and you affirm a way you see God working in someone's life. That's honestly, like, that's been one of the most practical ways that God has led me to know how to serve one another in love. Because as I look at those cards, I see the same words over and over and over and over, and those people aren't talking to each other. And so feedback from others is essential. You, you always have, and you're working at this church for many years, like I, I will pretty frequently experience somebody that's like, you know what I want to do? And only God knows, but like, you know, sometimes like more than one person are like, I'm not, I'm not really sure that's like how you're wired. Not really sure God's wired you to do that. Um, and so feedback from others is just so important. Um, it's easy for us to walk around and sort of think, yeah, like I'm really the only one the Spirit's leading. But like one of the things that kind of busts our individualism wide open about this passage is like there are other people that the Holy Spirit is using just as much as me. There are other people that the Holy Spirit is leading just as much as me. And so, like, maybe somebody would have a moment where, like, they wouldn't give you good counsel. But, like, what do you hear repeatedly as people share with you, this made a difference in my life? And then lastly, lastly, uh, small and steady is often better than big and flashy. Small and steady is often better than big and flashy. So, um, recently, I was listening to a podcast, and there was a famous Christian author being interviewed. And I really liked what he said, and it stuck with me. He said, I've written all these books. He said, like, I have a media platform, blogs, websites, whatever. And he said, um, and I don't think that's the most effective thing that I'll do before I die uh, for the body of Christ. And he said, the most effective thing that I do is probably the smallest and most unseen thing that I do. And he said, here's what it is. He said, I'm also a seminary professor. And he said, so regularly, I sit in a room with about 20 people who are preparing to be pastors. And he said, and every once in a while, I think to myself, think of the thousands of people that will be shepherded and impacted through this room of people. And he said, he said, somebody probably reads my book or my blog, and they forget it in one week. And he said, like, this regular investment in this smaller group of people will probably result in the shepherding of thousands, thousands. And so very often, something small that's just a, a long obedience in the same direction is way more effective for the body of Christ than just doing something momentary, big, and flashy. We're going to close the service this morning with an old classic, a classic hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. Uh, I remember it's a hymn I grew up with. It's one that stayed with me. It's a beautiful reminder that here's what it's about. God is doing world-changing, universe-redeeming things. But sort of lest we think he's sort of out there apart from us doing it, what Scripture really calls us to is to wake up each day, put on our pants, take up our cross daily, and say to the Lord, Lord, uh, take my life, take my experiences, take my abilities, take my design, take my passions, take my resources, and use them to serve other people in love. And this song is just a beautiful reminder 
of the heart of what Paul would say to the Ephesians if he were here with us. So I just invite you to stand. We're going to sing this song, Take My Life and Let It Be, and then I'll be back with you in just a few minutes to close this in prayer. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to our service. God, we are a busy people. And so God, guide us in seeing what to say no to, to make time for the eternally significant mission of serving one another in love. And God, lead us to see how to do that. 
Lead each of us to see, God, how you've divinely designed us to contribute to the whole so that as each part does its work, God, the body grows and builds itself up in love. God, what a beautiful vision. And so, God, may we go from this place just considering these things and hearing from your spirit. And God, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to worship today. There's somebody who would love to pray for you here at the front, or you can click the little prayer button online. God bless you.